From Wisconsin Sea Grant, I'm Hallie. And I'm Bonnie. And you're listening to The Water We Swim In, stories about the Great Lakes and the people working towards equity. Wisconsin Sea Grant is based at UW-Madison, which occupies the traditional land of the Ho-Chunk people. The stories on this podcast span the area we now know as Wisconsin, where the lands and waters are cared for by the 12 Native nations that call Wisconsin home. Hello, I'm Hallie. I'm the co-host for The Water We Swim In. I am a current student here at UW-Madison studying marketing and international business with a certificate in environmental studies. I am from Eden Prairie, Minnesota, and an episode I'm excited for you guys to hear about is the accessibility episode. I think it speaks on an issue that is not talked about enough, and we get to hear some inspiring stories from people that are currently making efforts towards accessibility. And I'm Bonnie Willison. I am a co-host of The Water We Swim In as well, and I make videos and podcasts here at Wisconsin Sea Grant. So I'm from South Central Wisconsin, and I grew up on an inland lake, but I didn't know much about the Great Lakes at all. But I've really enjoyed learning about them for this job and for this podcast series. Um, For this podcast series, we got the chance to do a story on tribal connections to water around the state. And that's one that I'm really excited for. I'm excited for you all to hear a future episode about an exciting project about wild rice in Lake Winnebago. On this podcast, we are going to mainly talk about water and equity. What's the first thing people think of when they think of water and social justice? Flint, Michigan. Yeah, you know, the Flint water crisis is endlessly fascinating on a lot of levels. And, And, you know, Flint was not the first. It's not the worst. It's not the biggest drinking water crisis we've had in the United States in the last 20, 25 years, but it is the one that captured the public imagination. Professor Manny Teodoro was studying environmental justice in water before Flint was a household name. I got to tell you this, this, this story because it, it fits so perfectly with the issue. Um, back in 2014, uh, before the Flint water crisis had, had hit the national news, I was working with a colleague who was actually a graduate student at the time on what was the first national analysis of the correlation between race, ethnicity, socioeconomic status, and Safe Drinking Water Act violations. And we found, strikingly, that uh, Safe Drinking Water Act health violations were significantly more likely in communities that are non-white and uh, of low socioeconomic status. So high poverty, non-white communities. Manny says that we can see that low-income black communities and especially low-income Hispanic populations tend to experience greater drinking water act violations. Well, we, we thought this was a terribly important finding and we, started, we tried to publish it. Let me tell you, it got desk rejected at three different journals because editors said that this wasn't an important or interesting question. Well, then the Flint water crisis happened and it got published because suddenly the world woke up and realized drinking water is an environmental justice issue. Environmental justice isn't just about where you put that incinerator or uh, that, that other sort of ugly environmentally damaging thing. It's also about who gets safe drinking water. It's about whose sewers are overflowing and whose sewers are, are working properly. That, that urban infrastructure can be a question of environmental justice. And so I think Flint really brought that to the forefront and made these sort of large uh, statistical analyses we do um, much more sort of tangible and relevant to people. 
Manny Teodoro is a professor at the School of Public Affairs at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. So I'm sort of interested in the organizations that provide drinking water and or sewer and stormwater infrastructure services to people in the United States. And Flint is an example of a drinking water situation that went horribly wrong. Back in 2014, the city of Flint was in a financial crisis and the governor of Michigan appointed an emergency manager. For cost purposes, the emergency manager decided to switch the city's drinking water supply from the Detroit system, the one that Detroit was using, to the Flint River. But it turned out that the water from the Flint River was corrosive. It caused a spike in lead levels that went on for 18 months. The water looked and smelled and tasted really bad and weird, and many people complained, but they were ignored. Even now, seven years after the crisis, all the lead pipes in Flint have not yet been replaced. Flint sparked the attention of the media and public because... The issues in Flint were so clearly not just about water chemistry. They were about the politics of the way that, that the state of Michigan and the city of Flint interacted with one another financially. It's about uh, the way that the city's government addressed the, the challenges of, of drinking water. It's about the fact that Flint is a majority black uh, city with 40% with poverty. It sort of put all of these kinds of social issues at the forefront alongside the water chemistry. And I think it was clear to most people that there's more to the story here than uh, corrosion control techniques at the Flint water treatment plant. So why Flint? Like, why did this failure happen in Flint? Well, like many Rust Belt towns, Flint's population was going down. Flint is a shrinking city, you know, sort of classic case of, of a Rust Belt community that has a shrinking population and therefore doesn't necessarily have the financial or human capacity to care for the infrastructure that is built uh, over the past several decades. You've got, as I indicated a moment ago, uh, a city with 40% poverty. It's majority black. Uh, it reflects some of the ugly history of racial conflict we've seen in the Great Lakes region over the past century. Uh, in, in that sense, we've got a city that was in a financial crisis and had lost control of its own finances and, and political decision makings. So all of these sort of things sort of combined to make Flint, uh, I think, a, a case that captures the imagination. It is important to keep in mind that discrimination was not only normal, but systemically ingrained for so long and continues to happen today. Manny breaks it down in terms of the systems that we rely on every day to bring water to and from our houses and workplaces. Here's the way to think about it in terms of the life cycle of a water system. Most water infrastructure will last between 50 and 100 years. Much of the infrastructure that serves the Great Lakes region, for example, is probably built between 75 and 100 years ago. Well, 75 years ago was before the Fair Housing Act, right? You could legally discriminate uh, and, and exclude people from uh, living in a neighborhood because of their race. That was not even illegal as uh, late as the 1940s. And this is a period of time when we built a whole lot of the drinking water and sewer systems that served the United States. So there are, there are places in the United States where you can look at the map and see, oh, this is where they stopped building the sanitary sewer system. This is where they stopped building the drinking water system. And it's no coincidence that on one side of the line was the white neighborhood, the other side of the line was the black neighborhood, right? So 
That was a long time ago on one hand. On the other hand, that infrastructure is still in place. Those institutions are still in place. So we are, we are definitely very much living with the legacy of that built community di uh, discrimination, built environment discrimination. All across the Great Lakes region, we see these legacies of redlining. We've been talking about Flint, but Manny points out that in cities like Gary, Toledo, Cleveland, and Detroit, we see... Central cities that are majority black, or, or at least plurality black, and you've got suburban areas that are majority white. Those housing patterns did not happen by accident. There's a, a well-documented history of, of racial discrimination in housing that drove those patterns. Well, in a lot of these areas, we have regional water and or sewer systems that put the majority minority central city into conflict with its suburban neighbors. The historical legacy of discrimination causes non-white populations to live at a higher level of poverty than white populations. So the, the problems that we see with paying for infrastructure uh, that we associate with poverty are also intimately tied up in more, some of the more structural elements of bias in, in sort of our broader economy and our, our broader society. Cities like Gary, Toledo, Cleveland, Detroit, and Milwaukee have a few things in common we see the same patterns of segregation. And also, they're coastal cities. They're all located directly on the Great Lakes. And we have- Different challenges in the Great Lakes region from just about anywhere else on the planet. Because we have right in our backyards, the greatest source of accessible fresh water on the entire planet. Let's think about that for a second. I like that suggestion. Let's take a pause and think about the Great Lakes. So as I talked about before, um, I grew up on an inland lake in southern Wisconsin, but I feel like in school I didn't really learn about the Great Lakes. I never really made trips there, and so I never really considered Wisconsin a coastal state, but it's true. Like, we have so many miles of coastline, Lake Michigan and Lake Superior. You've been to Duluth, right? Did you, do you remember seeing Lake Superior, and what was your impression of that? Yeah, I mean, I went to Duluth a couple years ago when I was, I think maybe a sophomore, freshman in high school. And I do remember seeing like a huge, like large body of water. And I didn't really know what it was. I just didn't really have any background on the Great Lakes or no, no one in my family really did. We just knew that, like, you know, try to like stay away from it because you don't want to drown, I guess. But um, we never really had like activities growing up that involved water or the Great Lakes at all. So I didn't really explore them until like I was older and I was just kind of like on my own. So um, since you got this internship focused on the Great Lakes, have you learned anything interesting about the Great Lakes? Yeah, I learned a lot. I mean, in each episode coming up, we'll cover so many different topics, but there's so much impact our lakes and our waters have on every single person. Like, even if you don't really think about it, even me, when I was growing up, I didn't have any type of experience with water, or the lake or anything, yet it was still affecting me without me knowing it. And you'll kind of see that throughout the, our next episodes, like I said. But um, yeah, I would say I've learned a crazy amount of <laughs> I think I'm pretty much an expert now, I think. <laughs> so as you can tell, here at Wisconsin Sea Grant, we think a lot about the Great Lakes. Our whole organization is dedicated to the sustainable use of Great Lakes resources. 
Here's our assistant director for communications, Moira Harrington. The Great Lakes truly are a treasure. I mean, they're a global treasure. I mean, they just support millions of people around the shorelines and they have for a millennium. Um, so we're talking about in Wisconsin, a thousand miles of shoreline. We're talking about 105 cities, villages, and towns. And that's today. But if you think back through millennium, the lakes have really sustained all sorts of people thousands of years ago, uh, supported their livelihood. The lakes were like the highways to connect people. I mean, we continue that today. More than anywhere else in the world, we've got access to fresh water. Unlike other parts of the United States, there are places in the desert Southwest or the Southern United States where they're they're running out of water, right? There are places where there's just not enough water. Their communities may be dying because they, they don't have access to fresh water. That ain't our problem. We've got plenty of it. That's the good news. That's, that's the hopeful part. We, we are better situated than just about anywhere else in the world to deal with the challenges of climate change. We all, we're gonna live, we're in a, we're in a region that's going to get more temperate. Our growing season's gonna get better. We're not gonna run out of water, right? We have all of these structural advantages. So that's the happy part. The depressing part is uh, all of our problems are kind of our, of our own making. And we, as a society, have created a lot of environmental problems. If you think about back in the in the early stages of the environmental movement, it was the issue of contamination of the Great Lakes, which was really high on people's radar because they could see the direct effects, the burning rivers, the influence of smokestacks and cities around the Great Lakes. I guess that is one thing that I did learn in school about the Great Lakes is that their rivers caught on fire, you know, and that was what sparked the environmental movement. Um, So that quote was from Jim Hurley, the director of Wisconsin Sea Grant. And while he thinks back to these challenges that we've dealt with, he's also seen improvement. To, To see that change now, to see the Fox River be fairly well cleaned of PCB pollution, to take a, a, a cruise on on the Cuyahoga River in downtown Cleveland and, and see that that's been remediated and that people are kayaking right through the central part of downtown Cleveland on, on that. And same for here in Milwaukee. So for some research, I was looking at old photos of Milwaukee back when there was a lot of industrialization and factories and industry putting chemicals into the rivers. And honestly, it is kind of powerful to think of how far we've come since then. You know, now when you go to Milwaukee, there's so much to do along the rivers. You can even swim in the Milwaukee River. We have done a lot of remediation, which is pretty inspiring. But we still have a long way to go. We still have water accessibility and water affordability issues like Flint. We, the challenges we have with we're providing adequate water and sewer s- services to everyone in, the, in this region are fundamentally political and economic challenges. Right? We've got the water. Right? We, we, can, we could, in theory, solve our, our water accessibility and affordability problems, but it, it requires a, a kind of political will and, and political coordination that is sometimes hard to do. And race makes that so much harder. After the break, overcoming a legacy of distrust.
So back to Flint, Michigan. They went through 18 months of dangerous drinking water that led to lead poisoning and outbreaks of disease. The residents were super concerned, but they were ignored by state officials. And community uprisings led to national attention. So what happened then? Were they able to switch their water source back and get clean water again? Yeah, so Manny remembers watching the developments closely. One option that the city had was to join this regional water cooperative. And financially, this made a lot of sense. On the one hand, this was a really good deal for Flint. But it was tremendously controversial. The city did ultimately enter into the agreement, but it was not without a lot of conflict within the city because the folks in Flint, quite understandably, didn't trust their neighbors. So, you know, why should I cooperate with you? You who have been discriminating against me for decades. Why should I trust you? That, that plays out across the region in ways that are destructive. That, that legacy of conflict, that legacy of hate, it hampers everything that we want to do to, to try to provide water for this region. And, and um, that, that's, that's sad. So Flint did switch back to the Detroit water, but the damage had been done. The pipes still leached lead and they were still unsafe. People living in Flint were forced to rely on bottled water and many people there still do. The citizens of Flint just do not trust their water or their governments anymore. And rightfully so, because they have been dealing with contaminated water for so long. They would rather be safe than sorry. But it's not just Flint residents who were forced to change the way they think about their water. The data pretty clearly show that the Flint water crisis has changed the way that people everywhere in the United States think about their water. And we see bottled water consumption increase across the country, especially uh, among Black and Hispanic folks, and especially among poor folks, uh, even in places where the drinking water system is fine. And I want to emphasize that tap water quality in most of the United States is perfectly fine. It's, it's very safe. It's very healthy. But there are places where it isn't. That's bad because bottled water is expensive. On a unit cost basis, it's somewhere between 10 and 100 times more expensive than what comes out of your tap. So what can we do about this? Manny gave us some of the structural reforms that can be put in place to ensure better water systems for everyone and hopefully ensure that something like Flint doesn't happen again. Number one, far and away, the most important thing, also one of the most difficult things, is consolidation. We've got way too many water systems. In Wisconsin alone, we've got over 500 drinking water utilities. That's too many. To give you a, a sense of scale, the entire UK, England, Scotland, and Wales has 25 water companies. We've got 500 in Wisconsin. That's way, way too many. And that's a huge problem because of our segregated urban, suburban, and rural populations. Like we mentioned earlier, there are racial divisions and socioeconomic divisions in the urban areas in the Great Lakes region. Because of this, white communities are often in the suburbs and non-white communities are often forced to live in the cities. Consolidation takes care of that problem by balancing it. Now, the trouble with the consolidation, what makes it difficult, is that that legacy of distrust. So we have to find ways to work through that distrust and make sure that consolidation isn't a white takeover of a black system, 
but rather a joint cooperative uh, exercise in uh, regional governance. There are ways to make it work, but it's, it's difficult. The second solution is regulation. Manny says Wisconsin is doing a great job with this already. Wisconsin continues to be a leader in uh, utility regulation. It's one of very few places in the United States where every water utility is subject to financial oversight along with environmental quality oversight. I'd like to see that model exported across the country. People laugh at me when I tell them this, but that Wisconsin Public Service Commission is a big reason why I moved to Wisconsin. Next, Manny believes that we need an investment in people and technology. And then the last structural reform. We need to build environmental justice considerations into everything we do in the water sector. And by that, I mean, we need to think about environmental justice when we decide where to build, where, which parts of our systems we're going to maintain and upgrade. We need to think about that where, when and where we're going to inspect and enforce environmental regulations. There is a disturbing pattern of behavior in the regulatory data that demonstrate that communities of color are much li less likely to get rigorous enforcement of environmental laws, whether that's the Clean Water Act or the Clean Air Act, or the Safe Drinking Water Act. When violations occur, minority communities are less likely to get rigorous enforcement. Uh, the most extreme case, of course, is tribal communities. After that is smaller majority Hispanic communities and following that is, is um, black communities. One of the places though that where there's little hope is that in urban areas where black communities have a history of political mobilization, we actually do see environmental regulators respond and take up more aggressive action to address environmental harms. So like Manny said, we've got racialized patterns of environmental violations. The good news is that when communities mobilize, they're vigilant and they demand environmental quality, the government does re respond. And so I think there's, there's a, a story there about community organizing and, and very much you know, credit to the, the sort of street level environmental champions in the minority communities that, that make that happen. After years of legal and unjust discrimination, communities in this country are separated by what Manny calls a legacy of hate. So what can we do about that? It's hard. It's really, really hard. My, and my dog agrees with me. Yeah, yeah hate is a terrible thing, uh, Lydia. It's, it, you see how angry it makes her? <laughs> Look, I don't, these, are, these things are hard. The truth is I don't have the answer and I'm not sure anybody does. The best I can do is say, putting people into conversation with one another, recognizing, not dismissing, but recognizing the legacies of hate that we're dealing with and doing our best to be open and honest with one another, recognize that people's distrust often is legitimate. It comes from an honest place. Um, it's not personal, uh, but it is it is collective and, uh, and, and something we have to overcome together. And that's what we want to do with this podcast. Put people into conversation with each other. This season, we'll meet the Wisconsinites and Great Lakes advocates working towards equity in a society where environmental injustice is the water we swim in. 
water is the lifeblood of Mother Earth, and I just want to help take care of things. It kind of felt like I could run again. If we let those issues be invisible, they'll never get fixed. Huge wave came by, and all of a sudden, it like sucked him in. You can see the passion that they have for that that fishing, like they they love it, you know. We heard about it in the newspaper, and it was this little blurb that said this pool is going to close. Giving access is justice. We're looking at this milky broth. The fish and I are currently making eye contact. Subscribe to the Water We Swim In wherever you get your podcasts.